Welcome to What's the 211 podcast, where we provide you with information about resources and programs in your community. 211 Maryland is a health and human service line for anyone seeking help for themselves or someone else. You can dial 211 if you need help with food, rent, or other services. Text your zip code to 898211 or visit our website at www.211md.org. If you or someone is in a mental health crisis or needs help with substance abuse, dial 211 and press 1 to immediately be connected with someone. Hello, everyone. Welcome to What's the 211. My name is Quentin Askew, President and CEO of 211 Maryland. And so as we continue to focus around mental health, I want to encourage everyone, if you are in need of immediate assistance, crisis support to contact 211 press 1 24 7 365 to speak to any of our crisis specialists today we have a very very special guest mr brandon johnson masters of health science brandon is also a public health advisor with samsa co-lead with faith communities task force national action alliance for suicide prevention which actually means you know he's, he's the right man to have this discussion today mr johnson how are you i'm good how are you how are you glad to be on I'm great. I'm great. Definitely. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, your role with SAMHSA and the Faith Communities Task Force? Absolutely. So at SAMHSA, I serve in the suicide prevention branch there. I've been at SAMHSA for about five years. And my role, I'm the program lead of our largest grant program. It's the Garrett Lee Smith Youth Suicide Prevention Program, specifically the state tribal program. And so we award grants to states, tribes, and territories to do suicide prevention work for youth and young adults between the ages of 10 to 24. I also oversee, as a government project officer, the Suicide Prevention Resource Center, which is the nation's largest technical assistance and resource hub for suicide prevention materials for the country. And as a part of the Faith Communities Task Force, I lead that initiative. And really what our job is, is to connect faith communities to the world of suicide prevention, to equip them with resources, tools, information about how to do that, and to really show faith communities that they have a role in in suicide prevention. That's great. In your experience, how has faith communities evolved around mental health? Oh, we're in a much better place now. I think even when I started in suicide prevention, which is about nine years ago, faith communities are understanding that Many people who are part of their faith communities trust their faith leaders even more than going to a mental health counselor or professional. And so with having that, it's important for our faith communities to connect others to mental health resources, connect them to therapists and counselors and and things of that nature. So, so many places and churches have mental health ministries. Even the church that I attend in in Baltimore, we have a Christian counseling center that's attached to the church. I mean, there's so much more now. The conversation is so different now. We still have some work to do now. It's not saying it's everywhere, but it's definitely been improving. That's good. That's definitely good to hear. And I've been following a lot of your work that you've been doing, whether it's through YouTube or LinkedIn. And and you also are the founder of the Black Mental Wellness Lounge. What what actually inspired you to create that that space and what have you been hoping to accomplish? Yeah, that's that's my pandemic baby. <laughs> that was <laughs> we all got one of those, right? <laughs> we everybody got one, right? <laughs> yeah. So I started that during the pandemic. It was really the time where the pandemic was, you know, was becoming a reality. And as a part of that, there were so many issues around racial trauma happening at the same time with Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. And so there was so much 
pain on my timelines with my um, on social media, with my family, my friends, and of just people of just, you know, trying to manage that weight of dealing with their mental health on top of a pandemic, on top of racial trauma, like so much happening. And so, you know, I, I thought about it for a while and I was like, you know, let me put out, you know, one video just to help people manage that. And so I put that out. And when I did, the reviews were, were really good. It got a lot of views. And I was like, you know, this may be something that I could do, you know, outside of my federal job. And so I'm doing that with permission um, for my federal role, which I'm not representing the feds on this. I just want to be clear about that also. But, you know, to really kind of engage with community, right? Like I miss engaging with the community. And so the Black Mental Wellness Lounge is my way to do that. And it's really designed for authentic conversations with Black people, whether they be clinicians, experts, you know, just, you know, anybody from the community just to talk about issues around mental health specifically for us, right? And to have that safe space to talk about the things that impact us directly. Yeah, and definitely a space that we need. And so, you know, doing a lot of the work that you do with Samson and tribal communities, like what's, and especially, you know, in our Black community, what has been most, I guess, difficult, you know, about the work that you do, most challenging? About the work that I do is, I, I would say it sounds basic, but there's still such a big reluctance across the country to talk about suicide. Like suicide is such a heavy topic. And I, I totally understand that. But as we see our rates in specific communities continuing to rise, it's important that we understand that suicidal ideation is real. People experience this, but there are resources and there are people and places and things in place to help individuals find resources to stay here, to find hope, to find the things that will push them into recovery. So I, I think that's the biggest piece of it. If we could get people more comfortable with the conversation to, to understand that they're, they're not alone and to understand that there are resources out there, I think we could do so much more if we could just get past the fear of the conversation. Yeah, and, and you you definitely hit a, a good point. And so that fear, like how, how do we generally describe or you know, how do you describe mental health, like what that actually is. I know we have, you know, so many definitions and descriptions for it of how we feel and, you know, our well-being, but how would you basically describe to sort of a layman, you know, what our mental health is? Our mental health is our emotional wellness, right? It's the ability for us to manage the things that cause issues with our mood, with our disposition, you know, with our ability to to function and get through life on a day-to-day basis. And so having a good mental health and overall good well-being means to be able to, in a healthy way, to manage the emotions and things that we experience on a day-to-day basis. It's not the absence of emotion. I know a lot of people feel like, you know, not having a bad day or not feeling sad is having positive mental health. And that's not true. We're always going to have those things. We're always going to get, you know, curveballs and blindsided in life. But Having good mental health is being able to manage those things mentally and emotionally to the best of our ability, having those things in place, whether they be coping strategies, whether they be healing practices, whether they be connection to a mental health clinician, but having those things in place for us to learn how to increase our emotional intelligence to be able to manage some of the things that we experience. Yeah. And just, you know, like you said, knowing every day is not going to always be a, a perfect day. And so you, know, you mentioned earlier about, you know, traumatic experiences, you know, that happens in the Black community. You mentioned, you know, some of those horrific events, you know, and again, it's communities of color, you know, that's something that has happened often. Like, how does that affect our mental health and well-being? You know, just growing up in communities that we grew up in, experiencing, you know, some of the trauma that, you know, with family, like, how, how does that play a role as, you know, from young adult to 
older adult that really affects us. Yeah, it impacts the way we behave. It impacts the way we think, how we feel, how we process information. It definitely impacts our fight or flight response to trauma. It may make us hypervigilant in certain spaces. You know, if we've experienced traumatic events, you know, at nighttime or somewhere on a specific area, we may be hypervigilant in avoiding that that area. You know, some of us have trauma responses, whether it, you know, pertains to gun violence and even the sound of, you know, of gunshots and things can be difficult for us. Traumatic experiences as it pertains to law enforcement. Also, we've Mm -hmm. experienced a lot of adverse experiences in in dealing with law enforcement. So even just driving and and having and hearing, you know, the, the sirens or seeing flashing lights behind you can create a sense of anxiety in that moment where you are worried about your own safety and well-being. Like if you're going to be okay, it also impacts us a lot of times in our, you know, in our workplaces. We've experienced, you know, racism, whether it be overt or covert, and a lot of times and it creates this challenging dynamic of being in the workplace, being African American and really thinking through you know, how are we perceived? You know, what way am I supposed to act? How are people looking at me? Will it affect, you know, my performance, my evaluations, all of those things as well. So it really is something that impacts everything. And it also impacts our trust. You know, we may not be, you know, trusting with, you know, certain individuals or new people that come into our lives because of our traumatic experiences. So it really does you know, impact everything about us or has the potential to impact everything about us, depending on how we're managing it and healing from it. And, and recognizing it. I know one of the things this year, you know, to Marone, we tried to focus on really on mental health, but also focusing, working with the Ever Health Administration about reducing, you know, stigma and the language that we use, making sure as we promote things and talk about it, that we're not using language that may, you know, as you trigger and affect others. Like how does language help or harm, you know, individuals that we're trying to help, trying to talk to, or just trying to share information with? Yeah, I think it's important when we're engaging with people, especially people with lived experiences, we don't want to isolate individuals who, you know, have, you know, experienced the things that we're talking about and make them feel less than, you know, I know people talk about, you know, saying a person is crazy or or doing things like that. And also a lot of the language around mental health has been, you know, incorporated into our daily language as slang. So we may mm-hmm. say this person's OCD or this person's acting bipolar without really, or this person's schizophrenic. Like we don't, not without actually taking into consideration of what that really means and how stigmatizing that is to a person who may be bipolar, right? Who may be schizophrenic who may have OCD and trivializing their experiences to, you know, a slang term used usually derogatorily, you know, to someone else is is something that can be, um, that can be damaging, even down to suicidal ideation. You know, I tell people all the time to shift language from committed suicide to dying by suicide, you know, to someone who, you know, we want to, don't want to stigmatize and criminalize someone who, you know, felt so hopeless that they felt the need to make an attempt on their life. And so we want to change the language so people feel that they can have the conversations in a safe space and not be harmed, you know, initially just by the language before they even have a chance to experience the potential for hope and recovery. Yeah, that's, that's good. I read, you know, recently a NCHS data brief that, you know, study found 24% of Black and Hispanic men ages 18 to 24 who experienced daily feelings of anxiety or depression were likely to use mental health services compared to 45% non-Hispanic and white men. Why is that? It's a bunch of issues. I would say first, it's definitely an access issue. 
Is mental health affordable? Is it affordable in the same way for people with insurance as physical health and specialists are there? And we know often it's not. It's more expensive and harder to get adequate coverage to someone needing those services. Also, the mental health system hasn't always been a safe space for us. You know, there are, you know, they have been challenges there in terms of, you know, getting connected to a counselor who may not or therapists who may not look like us and may not be able to adequately understand our experiences to guide us through the therapeutic process. And so what I, you know, tell people now, you know, men of color for sure, is that there are a lot more safe spaces, more safe spaces now for us than there has ever been. There are not enough therapists for us, but definitely more so to have these conversations. And so, and then the, the last thing I would say is still stigma. It's hard for us because a lot of us have been taught to manage our emotions in a specific way because vulnerability was a challenge for us. It was seen as a weakness in our community for a long time. And also we didn't want to be vulnerable because we thought it could, you know, lead to someone taking advantage of us, you know, in a really harmful way. And so because of that, some of us are just not even in tune or have a relationship with our emotional selves and our emotions and thoughts and feelings. And so it's a new space for us. And so some of us are apprehensive about it. So, but I think letting our people know that there are safe spaces will definitely start to heal some of that. It definitely makes sense. And so also, you know, with starting, you know, conversation with friends and family, I know, you know, that, you know hanging out with friends, homeboys and, and, and other close friends, it's not always conversations that, you know, we come up, you know, how you feel in the day, you know, what, what issues are you dealing with? Are you stressed out about anything? It's just generally, you know, as, as men, sometimes we don't particularly have that conversation or it may be uncomfortable. You know, how do we begin to shift, as you say, with that language to have that conversation with our close friends where it doesn't take away from, you know, our masculinity of saying, OK, just because you, know, you, you might say you're not OK, that doesn't mean, you know, you're not a man. Like, how, how do we begin to bring our, our friends into the fold of having these types of conversations? Yeah, one of the things that I, I tell brothers is to ask someone, you know, someone close to you, like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going through some stuff like I want to chat with you, you know, one on one, like, you know, like what's a good time. So I think one, you know, we get kind of put off by asking someone and they're like, hey, I'm busy right now. You're trying to, you know, connect with somebody like, hey, I can't talk right now. So you feel like ah, that wasn't it. And so you may not open up again. But I think, you know, kind of scheduling that time definitely helps because our brothers want to support each other. Like, right. Mm-hmm. Like we want to be there for one another. We just have to make sure that we're accessible, you know, letting people be accessible for, for us as well. And another thing that I, I've, I've talked about is, you know, once you take that opportunity with that brother and say, Hey, I got some things I want to, you know, chat with, chat with you about, and you do that, you're breaking down two silos. You're breaking down two walls. You're breaking down the one in front of you that is keeping you from talking to other people. And potentially you might be breaking down the wall on the other side for that brother to say, man, I didn't know we could do that. Right. Like I didn't mm-hmm. you know, think that right. that was a, an option for us. And so they may try the same thing with someone else. And so I think starting the conversation there is good as well. And the other thing I say is there's no wrong way to kind of bring it up. Cause I know a lot of times we talk about, you know, as men, if there's something serious, like we'll put it in a joke or we'll, you know, say it, you know, kind of like really quickly, you know, put it out, don't put it out there fully. But if, you know, bringing it up in jest, is your first way of exploring, like getting those emotions out, you know, do that, like take that opportunity and, and, and do that. I think, you know, 
it's just like any other, you know, muscle, you have to train it to get used to it and being vulnerable, being open and talking about our thoughts, feelings, and emotions. It takes time to get comfortable with, like I said, because we're not familiar with them. So take those times, like find a way to do it there. Like, you know, send it to someone in a text, you know, first talk to it, you know, talk it through with someone else first, like all those things is totally okay. And to do it on your time when you're ready, when you feel comfortable. Yeah, definitely great points. At 2-1, we created a uh, texting program in the Young Minds to stay connected with our, our young adults during the pandemic. You know, it provides weekly you know, mental health support, you know, supportive messages and just, you know, basic information. I saw, you know, where you had a, um, a YouTube discussion, in-person discussion, but was on YouTube with Youth at Morning Star. And so, you, you know, just engaging youth about their mental health and just wanted to know, like, how, how do you, you know, reach our young people? How do we have that conversation? Similar to saying with them as well? Yeah, I think it's definitely similar. I think for sure, like giving our young people the safe space to do that is important, right? Like giving them the opportunity to talk and to be open. A lot of our young people don't feel heard. They don't feel like we're listening to them. You know, they don't feel like we care about what they're going through, which isn't the case. Sometimes a lot of our, you know, parenting and wanting to protect them is, you know, actually making them more closed off. And they feel like they can't reach out and, and talk to us. So giving them that safe space and encouraging them to talk to somebody. I think a lot of times, especially I tell parents, you know, we want to be the person that they come and talk to you. But, you know, think back when you were younger, was your parents the person you always wanted to talk to? Right. So, you know, telling them if it's not me, let it be another trusted adult, whether it be a teacher, a coach, an, an you know, admin, another family member, a close friend, like allowing them to have that space. And and for our young people, I think for as adults, we get impatient with them not, you know, we can tell something's wrong, something's visibly wrong and they won't share and so you're like, you know, you get frustrated and feel like, oh, you know, they're, they're withholding this information, you know, let them do things on their own time and let them know that you're a safe place to land. So if today is not the day that they want to talk about it, fine. Just say whenever you're ready, I'm here, I'm open and, you know, being able to listen without judgment. And again, I know it's hard. I'm not saying that any of this is easy. Yeah. But listening without judgment, allowing them to get the things out before, you know, cutting them off or injecting our own thoughts and feelings into the mix, allowing them to get the words out and allowing them to be heard. Definitely good points. Does social media play a factor in, in you know, and in, in everything that's going on with our young adults, even, even adults, you know, with, around our mental health? Personal opinion? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll put it that way. Yeah, I mean, there is more, you know, research and stuff coming out every day about the harmful mm-hmm. impacts of, of social media. So it's, it's, you know, it's not just my opinion. There's some data to back that specifically around Instagram, for sure. But cyberbullying has definitely increased where, you know, when we were growing up, you got an issue with somebody, the bully was at school, you dealt with it there, or you dealt with it maybe in the neighborhood. But when you went in the house, it was gone, right? Like the house was a safe space. You were away from it. With cyberbullying, that's not the case. It's there. It follows you. Every time you pick up your phone, you can see you know, harmful messages about yourself. You know, young people have gone viral for getting into altercations, a bad picture, an embarrassing moment. Like at any time, those things can go viral, which adds to the stress that our young people are facing. And then the constant need to compare themselves, you know, to feel that, you know, I'm not getting as many likes. Nobody cares about this picture. I thought I looked really good here and nobody liked it. Like those kind of things, it matters to our young people. And again, if we're being honest about it, those things matter to us when we were growing up 
also. We just didn't have a platform to take it with us. But when we were getting ready for school, doing stuff, showing up at other events, those things matter to us too. So, you know, I, I think with the social media thing, I don't think it's going anywhere. I don't think we're going to be able to tell young people, you know, just just turn it off or just log off or just delete the app. It's not going to happen. It's not realistic. So I think it's managing, again, allowing our young people to talk and managing their expectations of, of social media and, you know, helping them to find other ways to deal with the stress of it. Because I think, you know, thinking it's going to go anywhere anytime soon, it's probably not likely. That's true. As we wrap up, what's your hope, you know, for Black mental health? For Black mental health, really for us to change the conversation, for there to be more safe spaces, for us to go to more therapists and clinicians of color across our community with the ability to take more clients. I think, you know, as we are in this space where more people are seeking mental health supports, which is fantastic, you know, we don't have enough therapists to meet the need where there's a therapist shortage in general and particularly around in our community. I think we only make up six to eight percent of therapists across the country, I think wow. is, is the number. And when you go into psychologists and psychiatrists, it's around less than two percent. So as we look at those numbers, that, that just isn't sustainable. So I, I want more of us in the field, more of us understanding what the need is and more of us being open about our healing. I think we can change the conversation with people who look like us, who have said, hey, I've made a suicide attempt and I'm still here. Here's what helped. You know, hey, I've been diagnosed with major depression. This is how I get through it. This is, you know, what I deal with and how I manage. I think more conversations like that would normalize this in our community and we can really foster a stronger environment of healing and recovery for our people. It was something that definitely affects us all. So how, how can others you know, connect with you, follow the great work that you're doing you know, in the community with SAMHSA and some of the other uh, task force that you're involved with? Yeah, absolutely. I would say to follow the Black Mental Wellness Lounge, go to YouTube, type in the Black Mental Wellness Lounge, we'll come up, subscribe so you'll get all of our notifications. On Instagram, we are at Black Mental Wellness Lounge. To connect there. We're also there on Facebook as well. Those people who are interested in Faith Hope Life can go to our, I mean, on the Faith Community Task Force, can go to our website. It's www.faith-hope-life.org, and you'll find our materials and our resources there. Great. Thank you. you know, Brent, I want to thank you again for coming on and having this important discussion with us. You know, definitely could have been longer, but I appreciate you taking the time out. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening and subscribing to What's the 211 Podcast. We are here for you 24-7, 365 days a year, simply by calling 211. Also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter at 211 Maryland or at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.